0: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order, additional terms apply. Welcome to The Connection, a weekly radio
1: program where we share our experiences and expertise with stories of caring, courage, and change right here in Connecticut. Listen to learn about needed resources to improve your well-being and transform your life. Now, here are the hosts of The Connection, Lisa
2: DeMattis-Lapore and Anne Baldwin. And welcome to another edition of The Connection, right here on WTIC News Talk 1080. I'm Ann Baldwin.
0: And I'm Lisa DeMatis Lapore It's wonderful to
2: see you this morning, Anne. You as well. And we should mention that Lisa is the president and CEO of The Connection. And we talk each and every week about different topics. And one of the things that we're talking about today, and there's so much to talk about. This is like... Um, an encore presentation of Dr. Kathleen Maurer, who's the medical director for the Department of Correction, and Dr. Maurer, you you're a medical physician. You studied at Yale. I mean, I'm just going to let you because you do it so nicely. Let's let the folks out there know that you got some street cred. <laughs> so.
1: So I'm a physician, went to medical school at Yale, trained at the University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas, which is a Parkland-affiliated hospital. Then I came back to Yale for fellowship training in occupational and environmental medicine. I'm board certified in that field, in internal medicine, and in addiction medicine. And I have an
2: MBA, an MD, and an MPH. Amazing. Wow. It is amazing can i ask you a question why the addiction medicine i mean that's kind of a new field right that's got to be one of your newer degrees
1: yeah so actually when i went to work at the department of correction um i didn't know a lot about corrections at that time and i started learning and i have this like desire to try to solve problems um and i realized that a lot of the people in our system had substance use disorders and that was You know, we wring our hands about recidivism, recidivism. What are we going to do about recidivism? These people keep coming back. Well first of all, let's look at why. Many come back because of substance use disorders. So along the way, I was given responsibility for the addiction services group at the Department of Correction and I said, well you know what, if I'm going to be responsible for this large group of people and our treatment of them i have to know what i'm talking about so i
2: studied and and got boarded in addiction medicine wow so lisa how does the connection and the department of correction how do your lives collide or should i say blend
0: they blend so it's a really wonderful partnership that we have with the department of correction we are um, funded by um, the Department of Correction to run several programs. And I must say that I think the Department of Correction is, has become more and more sophisticated. They really have a high quality level of the staff that work there. They're very passionate, they're very knowledgeable. Um, we've really enjoyed working with the Department of Correction. And I, I do, when I say partnership, I think that's really key because we really come together to understand and work together on clients. And and the treatment is individualized. And I think what I really love about the Department of Correction is the ability to give folks a call and to talk about a case and to figure out how we're going to make things work and if we have any issues, et cetera. But we're very lucky, um, like I said, to, of course, work with DOC, but most importantly, to have someone like Dr. Maurer at the helm. So it's a a great opportunity for the staff and for the work that we believe in.
2: You know, Dr. Maurer, we had an individual on this program a while back who ended up in Hartford County and then in the prison system here in Connecticut for multiple DUIs. And he talked about his experience and people that were coming down off of heroin and other drugs and how they were just dope sick and violently ill. Um, Is that still happening and is part of your initiative, you know, under your watch to kind of eliminate or try to alleviate some of that
1: yeah so there are formal medical protocols for what what is commonly referred as detox I call that medically managed withdrawal so we have formal protocols for managing withdrawal um, using um, opiate agonist therapy and we use those for patients so that should be um, a thing of the past
2: you know, and it's interesting because I learned this from my own personal experience with, with alcohol and that when I went to a detox and when the interventionist put me on the airplane, he fed me vodka the whole flight. I was like, I could get used to this. But you know, all joking aside, it was so that I didn't seize out because as a medical doctor, you know, you can't, even with alcohol, I think some, some people say it's even more serious if you just stop it than it is some of these other drugs it'll kill you.
1: Yeah, alcohol withdrawal is worse than heroin withdrawal from the perspective of the risk for death. Alcohol withdrawal can lead to death. Heroin doesn't usually, sometimes people die in heroin withdrawal, but that's mostly because they're dehydrated, they're throwing out, they're having diarrhea, and they don't have adequate fluid resuscitation. Alcohol is different. It's very uh, it, alcohol withdrawal can ha- can lead to death. You have to be very cautious caring for these patients.
0: Can you talk to us about the latest topic that I see everywhere, every news clipping, on the radio, et cetera, about the quote-unquote opioid crisis?
1: Yeah, so um, in not just Connecticut but across the country. Of it, course, it's across the country, yeah, yes. Yeah, the opioid epidemic is horrible. I, c- I call it a plague it it's ravaging our country our, our I I spoke not too long ago at the American Correctional Association I had a room of about 150 people and I said how many people here have not been touched by the opioid epidemic and like nobody raised their hands right. this is a a horrendous thing that's happening to us in our own state so the other thing that I th- really believe strongly is that corrections organizations across the country at all levels the jail side the prison side reentry mm-hmm. have a huge role to play in resolving this problem and why do i say that because why do i say that because 52% of the people who died of an accidental overdose in Connecticut in 2016 that's slightly more than half had at one time been in our system, in the Department of Correction.
0: So that's about, is that about 500 people?
1: It's actually 400 and something. OK, and it yeah. was close to 500. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, it's between 450 and 500. Mm-hmm. But uh, think about it. We, we have these people in our, I, I, you know, we have them incarcerated. We have the ability to treat these What an people. opportunity. That's right, what an opportunity. And it's not just us. Mm-hmm. It's all around the country, right? This right. is, the, the data looks just like this and uh, higher than this in Rhode Island. This is all around the country. So, so there's, so I have to say, I'm gonna say a little bit about what we're doing nationally. I'm part of the American Correctional Association, which is the largest correctna- correctional professional society in the country. And at our last meeting, I've been talking about M.A.T. at our meetings for, I don't know, four or five years.
2: And M- M.A.T. is Medicated Assisted is, Treatment. Yes, okay.
1: yes. Using medication along with psychosocial counseling to treat opioid use disorder especially. So in August in St. Louis, the, the three governing bodies of the American Correctional Association, mostly they are, it's a mostly custody-focused organization, and it's the largest in the world, um passed a resolution supporting the implementation of mat medication assisted treatment in corrections at all parts of corrections all along the criminal justice continuum from the you know even community policing to arrest to jails to prisons to reentry. i mean this represents a huge change wow a huge change in the approach of corrections to the treatment of, of
2: people, our people. And what kind of difference is it, is it going to make? I mean, what is your hope with that? Because, you know, Lisa asked you, what about this opioid epidemic? This is it, so what is your hope with this new change of philosophy, if you will, and treatment?
1: So if we're treating people coming out of our system and treating people when they come in, not taking them off their methadone, for example, putting them on an opiate agonist or opiate antagonist when they leave, either leave jail or leave prison, their risk for overdose is markedly decreased. Markedly decreased. It's not zero, but it's markedly decreased. So we can we can change these statistics. We can start moving this horrible problem down rather than up.
0: That's just astonishing. I, I, I when Dr. Maurer presented at our conference recently, um, I you know, of course I had seen these numbers, but I also have attended a couple of other symposiums on um, you know this the plague of opioid addiction and numbers across the United States and I know that it's the close to the th- a thousand number just because they were talking about it. but it was also interesting um, just to hear, Parents were telling stories of their children that died. They had five mothers that attended this one symposium at Yale Law School, and every one, four out of the five, these were young boys that died by 21. They all were excellent in school. They all came from maybe one family. There was a divorce, but I say that because people try to associate. Well, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, all sports-minded and. All of those four that had passed, call a coincidence, you're the expert, Dr. Marr, I'm not, they were hurt, they were injured at a young age playing sports and were put on a drug that they became then addicted to that started their addiction.
1: Yeah, we're seeing a lot of that, right. And there's a lot of effort now being put into the the, um, training for physicians, both training um, in medical schools yes. and training in the community, because we we relicense every year, mm-hmm. we we have to update our licenses every year, and there are continuing medical education um, criteria for doing that. And now there's a lot of effort being put into training
2: physicians to be very judicious about the use of opioid Opioids, treatment. Yeah. And I can tell you that is happening. But, you know, again, to play devil's advocate a little bit, why does a pendulum always have to swing, you know, from one extreme to the other? You know, I just had lunch with a friend of mine who needs double knee replacement surgery and has a a torn rotator cuff, a grown man, you know, in his, like, 60s. And he's like, I can't get any painkillers. They just won't give me any, you know, because of this whole opioid thing is what he blamed it on. So why is it, though, that the pendulum has to go from one extreme to the other? There are people out there who seriously do need those pain meds, but then you listen to Lisa talk about these young boys. It's like, from my opinion, when I went back to Colorado, people smoking pot, don't tell me, me and, that that's not a gateway drug. One thing leads to another, leads to another. It's like the kid that wants to ride the Ferris wheel, and they end up on the fastest roller coaster because it just gets more and more exciting. That's my editorial comment.
0: Also, I, I just want to clarify that um, that was no criticism to the you know the M.D.s that are pretty are amazing out there that are taking care of patients. Um, but it was just stunning to me, t- you know, to hear to hear that story, and it was just really heartbreaking. Um, and uh, you know the, the message really at the Yale symposium about that opioid crisis was that it can it was poignant for this reason because they were all Caucasian I need to say this they were all Caucasian and upper middle to upper class and folks in that symposium were silent because I think again when people think about certain populations or addictions they think it's minority they think it's this population they think it's this it's It is absolutely completely untrue. I've seen it. I yeah. know you've seen it. It affects everyone. It is not prejudice. Addiction is not a prejudice. No, it's
2: an equal opportunity Yes, disease. it is. <laughs> yeah, there's no question. I don't mean to giggle. Yeah, uh, if you're just tuning in, we're talking with Dr. Kathleen Maurer, um, Medical Director for Department of Correction. You know, one of the big burning questions, and you had it in your presentation that you presented to the at the Connections uh, Conference, is, you know, why do people use opioids? Why do they start? Why do they... Why what what's in it for them so most people actually if you talk
1: to people um a lot of them don't start because they want to be addicts mm-hmm.
0: right oh, i don't, of don't think course you, not.
1: i don't think you can have anybody tell you oh i did this because i had in my mm-hmm. one of my life goals one, on my bucket list to be <laughs> an addict right yeah. true people start by parties with teenage kids and yeah. taking pills mm-hmm. they start with an injury right. many you know What Lisa says is really very true. I see this many times. as People get injured. They get uh, a narcotic pain medicine. Mm -hmm. They realize that it's a really nice thing to have, and they keep using it and using it. They want more and more. They use it before their scripts are done. Finally, their doctors say no. And then they're looking for something to relieve the cravings and relieve the withdrawal, and they go to heroin. I mean, that's a kind of a... Uh, and I'm sure that that's what you heard I from did. those folks in New Haven. I did. It was heartbreaking. I did. It is heartbreaking. It's awful. You know, in my profession, uh, right? My profession I know, I know. is responsible for a lot of this. Um, but there are a lot, so so people don't choose to be addicts, and I think different people come to addiction in different ways. There are different pathways, but everybody, when they get to that addiction, end. Really need care. Really need treatment. Really need understanding. And
0: we've seen many clients also not necessarily started at teenage, but those that, you know, became addicted older. You know, older in their life from accidents on the job, carpenter. You know, again, I'm not, I'm not stereotyping, but folks that got injured, injured in some way, whether it was recreationally or whether it was on the job, and they started, you know, taking pain meds and, you know, lost everything and. You know, or trying to re- rebuild their lives again.
2: You know, and I, that you bring up a point that, that hits home for me because for me, my alcoholism didn't hit me hard until I was 50. So you just never know. I mean, was I an alcoholic all my life? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I got married, had a great job, I raised kids. I, you know, if I did, if I was, I was functional. I mean, I'm pretty aware of what I've done. But it wasn't until I hit 50 that something clicked in my disease. And it just went on, the faucet was opened and it couldn't be shut off. You know, so that's the other point here. You never know when it's going to hit you. You see people later in life. I mean, I see it in the rooms. I see people in their teens. I see people in their 80s. You know, you just never know. There's no rhyme or reason. There is no stereotype. And if we look at the news and if, unfortunately, you read the obituaries, look at the faces of those young people that are dying. I know that's who's dying, that's what's happening. So one of the things I wanna ask you about, Lisa, too, while we have um, Dr. Maurer here is, maybe someone out there listening doesn't have someone who's incarcerated right now, but has someone who has an issue. Mm -hmm. Where can they go? At The Connection, you've got so many services, but you talk about partnering, just like you do with Department of Correction, with other social service agencies. Where can someone out there access information if they if you think somebody's got a problem, chances are, doctor, right? They probably do.
0: So we uh, encourage for listeners: if you have a question, whether it's personally related to yourself or a loved one, that you um, contact us at our website, which is theconnectioninc.org, theconnectioninc.org, and we also have our um, toll-free helpline, which is eight five five four three five seven nine five five and we will direct you and assist you and are your loved one in helping you find treatment and once again it, um, you know certainly if you can look at our website do that but I just want folks out there to understand that if we don't have a service that you or your loved one need we will hook you up in Connecticut with one of um, the other agencies of course um, because we don't treat everything obviously
2: right I mean you know and that's just it that's what's so unique about Connecticut too is that there's you know different ag- agencies with different areas of expertise and that's what we need you know it's like it's like my business I'm a public relations firm but I don't do certain things I'm not one-stop shopping and nobody should be No.
1: can I tell you uh, one yes. thing about so methadone is an extremely highly regulated medicine in our society. DEA regulates it in our state. uh, Demus is involved, Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, and the Department of Public Health. Methadone is dispensed in this state and all across the country by opiate treatment programs, OTPs. So if if that's something that you think you need, um, Lisa at the connection can connect you or you can Google opiate treatment provider yes. in the state, and you can see there are a number of OTPs in the state that have same-day intake. So you walk in, and usually between like 8 and 2, and they will see you that day and actually start you on medicine Who pays for that? Does it cost? Yeah, so um, Medicaid it certainly pays for methadone treatment. I think the private providers, it varies some. You might know better than I do on that. Um, but all of these opiate treatment programs also have, um, they have sliding scales, Right. so, so they, I, I've never seen people, besides organizations like The Connection, I've never seen people who are so committed to patient care as the opiate treatment program providers. They have sliding scales, they sometimes treat for free, right. I mean, they are they remarkable. Do. And and you, you just Google it and you can see those providers. And, and I also
0: know too that um, someone, a friend of mine, um, is having an issue with one of her, one of her um, loved ones. Who they're concerned that you know this this young girl may be addicted, right? And so um, th- anyway, she called exactly what you're talking about, one of these treatment facilities, and was able to get um, Narcan. You know. Narcan kit, so that the family, so that the family has it, and they will. They're also going to teach um, the family how to use it, and also there are pharmacies that are willing to do that. You call the pharmacy, you talk to them. They've been pretty amazing in, re- in response time to our families and teaching them how to administer it.
2: Yeah, and I know emergency EMS, uh, right. we work with Glastonbury EMS, they carry it now too. So that brings up something else you wanted to mention. Yeah,
1: let me just say that that's a really excellent point. Anybody who has a family member or a, or a relative or, or a acquaintance, who might have an opioid addiction, really should have naloxone absolutely. in their homes. They should have it, and they should know how to how to use it. So where do you get it? Lisa's absolutely right. Most of the pharmacies, the, the chain pharmacies around the state, mm-hmm. you walk up to the pharmacist, they spend some time teaching you how to use it, and insurance pays for it. Typically, right. and I think Medicaid does too.
0: Medicaid pays for it. And so how many
2: lives have we heard of? Do you know how
0: many we've saved in how connection? How many? Oh, men I don't even know how many. There's so many. I don't. I don't really have the number, but it's administered. All of our staff are trained. I want to be trained because I'm thinking if I'm in a program and I'm walking through. So and I'm requiring that everyone at our main office is, learns how to be trained. We do in-house training. We do it on a regular basis. All new staff have to be trained. We have, these, we have the kits. In fact, our staff are carrying it around on their keychain.
2: You know, you, you, you learn CPR, and you save lives. Why? This is the new CPR, I guess.
0: We have saved, I mean, just over the last month, I know for a fact, three. Wow. So
1: I'm
2: actually involved with the
1: state police Narcan program. The state police, the troopers all carry it. (coughs) Excuse me. And they are, the state troopers are the first responders in a lot of the state. And, (coughs) excuse me, and we've saved, I think that program has been running almost three years. And that program has saved, I think, close to 190 people's lives. Wow. It's somewhat less than 200, but it's between like 190 and 200. So. These, naloxone, is, you know, so the state troopers will say, Doc, it's magic. I say, well, you know what, <laughs> at least you have it, and you're, you're reviving these people. But it is kind of magic, right? It pushes the drug off the receptors, and people wake up. Exactly. And
2: then it's and what you do with that person after they wake up. You know, I, I like I said, we, we work with some emergency medical folks who say, you know, unfortunately they re- revived people and they go right back out and do it again sometimes with the with the needle still in their arm. So you know, it's like...
1: Can I talk to you about that? Yeah, yeah, please do. So
2: this state has
1: a very creative emergency department director named Dr. Gail D'Onofrio in New Haven at Yale. They did a project where they showed that people like that who come into the emergency department can be started on buprenorphine, so suboxone, buprenorphine, naloxone. And something like 70% of them were still on suboxone after a month in the community. So DEMAS, who's like a a remarkable agency, funded a number of EDs around the state to do that same thing and that program those programs are just getting off the ground in the last couple of months but this i have to say That's that there fantastic. are some remarkable people in this state yes, remarkable agencies yes. remarkable leadership people like the connection remarkable providers so this so this is a problem with with not getting appropriate access to care once you've told us, hey, I'm an opioid addict and
2: I almost died, mm-hmm. I need care. Mm-hmm. Immediately,
0: right? Yeah. right then. Exactly.
2: Right. And there's a lot of programs now that are going to the, into the emergency room departments. You've got you know, addiction counselors and things you know, that are bringing those folks in there, the first line of defense. And you know, sometimes, I know in my life, you almost need the crap scared out of you. And if you can feel better, like once I detox, I'm like, okay, I can be better again. And maybe that's what's happened with some of the Suboxone and those kinds of things. People say, you know, you get that sense of normalcy again, and it feels good. It feels good. I didn't want to go back to the sickness that I felt and the, and the way that I looked and my hair falling out and 98 pounds. I didn't want to go. That wasn't attractive. But you know what? I was, I was in the rat cage, right? I'm going around the wheel. I couldn't stop. And a lot of people are going around that wheel. But now, you know, you say it's an opioid epidemic. It is. But I think if anything good has come out of that, people are learning more, People, are, there's more access to care, there's more funding, there's more responsiveness. So
0: collaboration out of
2: everything tragic, maybe comes something good, right? And, and maybe less stigma.
1: Yes, I, I think important. stigma is huge it about is huge. this disease. And one of our real jobs in this world, if we make a difference, is to reduce the stigma associated with this disease.
2: Well, and why do you think I talk about my recovery? You know, I put a face and a voice on it. I'll tell people, yes, I'm in recovery. We're doing this radio show. It wasn't an easy decision to make. But if I can show people that I'm a successful, you know, business owner, mother, grandmother, I didn't lose everything, I'm back on track and have been for a while, and if I can give hope and help and, and, you know, anything to somebody else out there, I've done my job. So that's what we need to do and that's what people th- share your story, share your courage, strength and hope. That's what that's all we can do. People can get better.
0: They do. Can you just briefly talk about fentanyl? There's all this talk about fentanyl and exposure to fentanyl and you know, et cetera.
1: Yeah, so fentanyl is really scary, right? Yeah, it fentanyl's is. a much more toxic opioid than heroin. It takes much less to kill you. Um, a lot of the fentanyl is so fentanyl's easier to make than heroin. You can just chemically make it in a simple lab. A lot of the heroin that's coming into this country is now mixed with fentanyl, so it's not just a simple heroin overdose. Exactly. It's not just a. It's it's a fentanyl, and there's also a drug that's ten thousand times more potent than heroin called carfentanyl, which is, I I just read a death report a couple of days ago that the the substance was carfentanyl. So there it was in New York, and, but not here. But, but this is a horrible, mm-hmm. horrible risk for for people it because. Is you don't know what's in that bag, no. right? You right. don't that's know, a, that's exactly it could right. be heroin, it could be f- all fentanyl, it could be carfentanyl mixed with these other things. Uh, I mean, it's so it's a terrible problem. And when you try to reverse carfentanyl and fentanyl with naloxone, it's a totally different story. Mm. Heroin is a relatively, in general, it's a relatively easy to reverse with naloxone. With fentanyl, it's harder. With car
2: fentanyl, it's probably almost impossible. Hopefully we've shed some light on this subject. And, and again, Dr. Kathleen Maurer, from, the medical director from Department of Correction, thank you.
0: Thank you so much for being here.
2: Great conversation. It we is we really should do part three and part four, but uh, we'll have you back again. Please.
0: Definitely will.
2: And thanks to all of you for listening to this edition of The Connection right here on WTIC News Talk 1080.
0: Really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch.
1: Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. Five dollars more per line without auto pay. Plus taxes and fees. Phone fees 24
0: monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. See Tmobile.com.